Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to start the talk tonight with uh, a teaching from Suzuki Roshi from his incredible book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Here it is. In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. And if it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in practice, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If if you practice in the right way, it doesn't matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion and sympathy for the worst one than for the best one. When you're determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) Unless you happen to be a good horse. Don't worry. There's hope for you if you're a good horse. But when you hear that, it probably is something that you can recognize, just that way that we have of assessing our practice, seeing how we're doing. Has the thought occurred to you, how am I doing since you've been here? Am I doing okay? Am I a good meditator? Am I at the low end of the normal curve? Maybe you didn't put it quite in that articulation, but if you have noticed some tendency to assess and see how you're doing, whether it's comparing to others around you or to how you were on your last retreat, the one where you ended up just in perfect bliss that made you sign up for this one maybe, (laughs) this is what I want to talk about for you about the comparing mind and the mind that tends to get caught in judgment. The Buddha had something to say about the comparing mind. Actually, something that you might find comfort in. If you're familiar with the different stages of enlightenment in the Theravadan model, there are four stages from stream enterer and once-returner and non-returner and fully enlightened being. At the third stage of enlightenment, 
they're still comparing in the mind. So if you find yourself caught in that, it just means you're no higher than third stage. Cut yourself a little slack. It's so deeply embedded in our psyches. How am I doing and how am I doing relative to others? And this is some words of the Buddha in one translation. He said, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) And who do we annoy most? Guess. You're the one that hears all your judgments and comparisons, and you probably aren't thrilled by them. You're the one that has to somehow process the fact that this mind is so commonly comparing and judging and usually not measuring up in some way. When has it happened for you? Just in these last few days, have you noticed? It often happens in, uh, in the more social situations, like mealtime, right? Where you see who's being impeccable, who's piling food on their plate, how they're doing or how you're doing, heaven forbid, if you drop a fork in the hall, in the, uh, in the dining room, and everybody hears. <clears throat> or walking meditation, there you are walking, minding your own business. Somebody comes by and no matter what they're doing, there'll probably be some kind of evaluation. You know? If you're feeling kind of... Mm, okay about your practice and somebody's going in a more moderate pace, you might say, gosh, you know, why don't they slow down? You know? Or if you're feeling a little bit lousy about your practice, you might say, boy, they are just so natural, just themselves, and not caring about any image. How wonderful. I wish I could be like that. Or somebody else goes slowly, really slowly, and you say, God, what a super yogi, you know. Or who do they think they are? You know? <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on out there, the mind will still find some way to compare against what's what you see outside. I, I can remember it's interesting uh, giving this talk and, and sharing some some stories, um, which most of my stories and, and practice experiences happened in, in the center. So it's kind of different as I'm sharing some of these stories and it's like right here. Uh, but I can remember one time walking in the, uh, well, downstairs a lot and uh, I'd be walking and if I'd be all by myself, just sometimes I really would get into it. Just this slow walking, you kind of get in a gear and it, it, it's, it, it just, would feel good at times. It's not the only way to practice, but it certainly can, can be a, a mode that people get into. And I, I was really enjoying the slow walking, and there'd be nobody around, and I'd just be going, oh, lifting, moving, placing. Somebody else would come into my space, and there'd be a whole different reason for walking. And I started to catch it and note it, lifting, moving, looking good, Lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, lifting, moving. Yeah. It was humbling, but you know that was what was going on. What could I do? Is but just name it. <clears throat> How much our practice becomes something that we 
not only judge in ourselves in comparison, but imagine or project some kind of an image. How are we doing in others' eyes? When probably the other person is just trying to focus on their own steps and wondering if they're doing okay in your eyes. Particularly in our culture, our Western culture, this has been going on, you know, this, this comparing has been going on as long as there have been humans with minds and hearts. But in our culture, it's accentuated even more, particularly the, uh, the, Amer- the Western culture, the American culture, not only uh, the, the culture in the States, but particularly this country prides itself, as many people will tell you, we're number one. You know, number one what? I don't know, but we're number one, you know, the richest, the most powerful, the best, or whatever, you know. But it can be any culture. If if your country has a sports team that's a good contender for the World Cup or for some kind of international play, you know, how important it is, is it that your your team wins? It represents your whole country and your whole your whole presentation in the world. And the same way we can evaluate not just our teams, but our cities. My city is better than your city. My region is better than yours. My class is hipper or less or more or whatever. My and then it goes to our person, our bodies and our minds, our accomplishments. Even our lack of accomplishments can, can become a kind of badge. You know? You know, I'm not into accomplishing things this lifetime. You know? I'm beyond that, you know. Or how dense you are, how, how really um, messed up you are. You know, when I was in college, it was like, and I went through this whole existential crisis, and it, it was like, if you are happy, you must be shallow, you know? <laughs> I am really messed up, you know? <laughs> I must be really deep, you know? And it doesn't stop when you come to the Dharma, as you know, I've been saying, can have competitive practice. You know, the first time I did a three-month course in this room, I, uh, 1976, and I would get into a mode of, um, I'd like to stay up late at night. You know, just kind of, I was going to give it my all. And there would be, as maybe there is now, a nice club of people, the late night sitters club. Okay. But they're still sitting, and it's late. And I'm not going to go to bed. (laughs) Somebody's still sitting. I'm going to be sitting as long as they are, you know. And it was really, I saw this night after night at some point, just this, I I was catching it, but I was still caught up in it. I'm going to be the last one in the hall. And I finally went to Joseph for an interview, and I said, there's something a little bit off here. And he told me, actually, in his practice, when he was practicing in Bogaya uh, in uh, his early days, in uh, the Burmese Vihara, he was in a room next to this fellow, this Danish guy, who, and they, were, they, were, they shared the same um, ceiling. It, it wasn't a closed ceiling. So if the, the, this fellow's light was on, he could see it. And he was going to stay up as long as that guy was up. And every night, he said, he couldn't do it. And he was very frustrated until finally, sometime later, he found out that the guy was sleeping with his light on. (laughs) So he said, don't worry. Whatever gets you there, just watch watch the mind do its thing. And even when you get to give Dharma talks, 
the comparison, you know, unless you're beyond third stage, is there. You know, when I was first giving Dharma talks, this is in the early 80s, I'd be at Yucca Valley and uh, be a big crowd, you know, 150, 175 people. And Joseph would give a Dharma talk and just blow everyone away with clarity and wisdom. You know. Jack would give a Dharma talk, Jack Cornfield, and just weave this spell of, that, that mesmerized everybody. Sharon would give a talk on metta and tears would be coming down people's <laughs> eyes. And then I'd have to go. Right? And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd say, get that guy off and get Goldstein back on. It was really, it was painful. You know. Here's a, a passage I love. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you know, who is um, deep and wise and sharing his own challenges around this comparing mind, <clears throat> this judging mind. <clears throat> He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight and nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho, you can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They're still, they still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. <laughs> and up until that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he'd said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. <laughs> And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at the self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks, all these many years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. <clears throat> so this, this fetter at the third stage, one of the last to go, is called the conceit of I am, mana, the conceit of I am. And that word conceit doesn't only mean, oh, aren't I wonderful. It's any kind of creating a sense of self that you then compare to others around you. Like in that quote where he says, the notions equal to or inferior or superior, all three are creating this sense of identity that we then evaluate relative to others. 
And we can also evaluate it relative, as I said a moment ago, to our own high standards of what we think should be happening. Have you noticed that at all these first few days? That somehow you have an idea of how concentrated you should be, how mindful you should be, how little the mind should wander. How many people have noticed that in their own practice? Yeah. See, you're, no one's beyond third stage here. Okay. It's, it's something to consider, oh, this is just how the mind works. Not you're doing anything wrong. If you try to get rid of those thoughts, you know what happens when you try to get rid of them. Stop having these thoughts. I hate this thought of comparison. Yeah. The more you try to get rid of a thought, you know, if I say, don't think about a pink elephant right now, get it out of your head. Try really hard to get it out of your head. It just doesn't work. So how to work with this and how to open to it in a way that enriches your practice. First to see that the conceit of I am in one way or another is rooted in fear. In one sense or another, there is this, there's this ascertaining, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I worthy? Can I do it? What if I can't do it? This feeling of somehow not being complete just as you are. Even if you know better in your mind, it's very deep in the the body and in your being. This feeling of not being enough and unworthiness. It's so painful. And I know this one very well. It's such a misperception. I remember in, uh, at the end of the 1979 three-month course, it was very, it was an amazing course, and the Dalai Lama came at the end of the course. It's a great way to break a retreat, right? And he was sitting up here and answering questions. And somebody said, um, asked him, what do you do about uh, unworthiness and self, self-hatred? Do you have any advice for that? And uh, His Holiness didn't understand the term at first. And he went back and forth with the translator trying to get the concept. And then we, we went back and forth and finally he understood. And he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine the Dalai Lama saying that to you after, after two, two and a half months. You're wrong. But he said it with such compassion. And then he went on to say something like, this is what I got from it. What makes you think that everything else belongs in the fabric of life and somehow you're not good enough, that you're a mistake? It was a very powerful moment. There's a line in, uh, in The Course in Miracles that goes something like, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. I love that line. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Who are you to assess how good you are? If you're good enough to be alive, to be embodied, an embodied expression of life in this form. Or as um, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, I heard him say this in a talk, timidity is just another ego trip. I'm not good enough. 
and it's the I, it's still creating this I that's not good enough. It's just another ego trip, one in reverse, but it's filled with self, reification of self. So first it's, it's useful to see who you really are beyond your evaluations and ways that you don't measure up or ways that you are giving yourself an A plus or whatever. Who are you really? Well, as probably most of you are quite familiar, in Buddhist psychology, we are this mind-body process of six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, thought, feeling. And another way to break down this idea of who we are, besides the six sense bases, are the five skandhas. Form this body, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, vedna, the feeling tone or flavor of experience, perception, that is, all the other four are mental components of, the, of this mind-body process. For feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And the feeling tone, the perception that recognizes and um, categorizes according to past experience, mental formations, all of the thoughts and feelings that we have running through, and a consciousness that knows. That's it, the five skandhas. It's not that you're bad for having the five skandhas or you have to get rid of the five skandhas. That's the deal. That's who you are. And as it said, the difference between somebody who's enlightened and somebody who's not enlightened is an unenlightened being grasps at the five skandhas and takes them to be me, excuse me. Whereas somebody who's free sees these are just aspects of life that are coming together in this particular pattern called me that have a fluidity to the process. The one skanda of perception is where we get caught in the comparing mind because that categorizes according to our past experience. And so this person has shorter hair than I do, or curlier, or straighter, or smoother skin, or however you want to categorize. And soon as there's that distinguishing, the mind can jump into what is called wrong view, taking this collection of aggregates to be better, worse, or equal to that. But really, this is a misperception. And every time you identify with this body and with this mind, you are falling into not only wrong view, but creating suffering for yourself. And our task is to see beyond that categorization and that creating of self to see something else quite free that is shining through. Ajahn Sumedho has this this, uh, beautiful expression, the shining through of the divine. That once you see through this self-view, there's the the shining through of the divine. This is Nyoshul Kempo, a great Tibetan master. He says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. 
There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So how to work with this comparing and judging when it comes up in the mind? First to see through that reification and how we take ownership of different qualities of, of ourselves. I was speaking to somebody in, uh, in an interview today, uh, and this is something that I found so helpful in my own practice. You know, when, you're, uh, when your body is hurting, and uh, which it can certainly in the beginning of a retreat or any time during the retreat, and uh, you say, gosh, I, I just, it's such a struggle to sit on the floor, to sit cross-legged, and your body is racked with pain, but somehow you don't want to get into a chair, you know, because getting into a chair would mean that you're not a good yogi. This is a real misunderstanding of identifying with your body. Saying, oh, if I had control over my body, I wouldn't be having this pain. If I had control over whatever it is, the gurglings or the the burpings, you know, I wouldn't, and you feel so embarrassed or this knee pain or whatever it is, and you get frustrated by it, or then, heaven forbid, you have to sit in a chair. This is a, a great misperception, seeing your body is just following its own laws. And so to sit in a chair, if you're going through a great struggle, is, is really understanding the selfless nature of this body process that needs attending to. It can be the greatest act, not only of compassion, but of wisdom to really not identify with it and say, oh gosh, I'm so pathetic because I have to sit in a chair. Just see, oh, that's what this body needs right now. Or if you're finding your mind is giving you a hard time, which it does from time to time. How do you relate to it? How do you take it on and take it personally? Oh gosh, you know, I'm so caught up in fear. I'm such a a fearful person. I'm so, I get so lonely sometimes. I'm such a lonely person, sad person, or whatever you call it. And then you start to judge yourself for that when it's just part of being human. Anybody never have thoughts of sadness or loneliness or fear? It's just part of the package. I I love the teaching the Buddha saying, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. That this is your laboratory to understand what it means to have a mind and a body. And the more you can understand this one with kindness and compassion and clarity and wisdom, then the more you see how we're all not so different. That's why Buddhist psychology pertains to everybody. Just like, you know, I sometimes think of, you know, Gray's Anatomy. Of course, everyone knows Gray's Anatomy. It's a popular TV show, uh, Grey's Anatomy, the, the book that says, this is how the human body works. And sure, there's variations within each one, but this is the basic template. And in the same way, the mind, this is how the human mind works. And yeah, there's variations in each one, but the Buddha figured out, this is how it works. This is how it gets caught. This is how it could be free. And you're exploring this one to not only be free within yourself, but to see 
the commonality that we all share, which leads to a genuine feeling of connection and love. So to take it personally and thinking, oh, I'm such a sad person or frightened person, you're missing the connection, the human, the humanity, the universality of that and getting caught in reifying yourself. And as you see that, as you can see it with a little bit more space, then when there's fear or there's confusion or there's judgment in the mind, there's an awareness that can see it. The awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of sadness is not sad. The awareness of judgment is not judging. The awareness can hold it all. It's just these different mind states doing their little dance within the space of awareness. And what we're learning here is to be the awareness without creating a sense of self that says, oh, I am the awareness, but just that the awareness is awareing And there doesn't have to be a self created in any of it. So that's that's the main strategy to not take ownership of whatever it is that's got you in the judgment or comparing the not good enough or the better than or however it is that you get caught. A few other ways that I find helpful to work with is um, really coming down to a quality of forgiveness. Forgiveness for all the conditioning that's gone into those patterns. If you had control over your mind, you probably wouldn't have the judgments and the comparisons and give yourself a hard time, would you? But it's there. How is it there? It's been practiced over and over. And to understand that getting caught is just being confused by these patterns that have been practiced so, so often. On, on one, one retreat, it was, that, uh, it was that first three-month course, I had a really um, uh, a ma- uh, powerful experience of forgiveness. I was down in the, uh, in the gym. Now it's been blocked off. There's, there's people that are staying there, right? Isn't there some, some people that are? It used to be just a gym, right? that was used as a walking room. I haven't been down there in, in, in a while, but I, I did spend a retreat where I spent a, I had a, uh, a place uh, uh, in the 80s when it was already converted to some dorm spaces. But at this time, it was just a gym and I was all by myself. And I was doing, um, I was getting into slow walking, right? And I, I just decided to make a game out of it to see how slowly I could go. Right? So there I was. Nobody was around. I didn't have to feel self-conscious at all. And I, and I decided, if you've ever seen the, the uh, mime Marcel Marceau, you know, I just tried to be Marcel Marceau. How does he do it? He, he would move so slowly you couldn't see him moving. But but all of a sudden you'd see he had moved. So there I was just really crawling to the best of my ability and really getting into it just... And in the middle of this, somebody comes into the walking, into the gym, into the walking space, who had just come onto the retreat. Because in those very first years, they tagged on a two-week retreat at the end of the three-month course. They only did that for a couple of years, and then they thought, not such a good idea, and they stopped it. But this was, 
those first years. And you can really feel, obviously, when somebody's come from the outside world, I knew this was going to really look bizarre, but I wasn't going to stop my, my game. And there I was just crawling, really, really delighting in it. And after about two minutes, this person bolted out of the gym in what I was sure was the comparing mind. And as she went across my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. (laughs) She must think I am a great yogi. And then the words just reverberated in my mind. And I heard them in all their glory, all of this ego and presentation. And it was like I, I fell into this trap door of this dungeon of yuck and ego. It was, it was really humbling. And I then went from the slow walking to being like a cage tiger. And I started going back and forth saying, I am never going to get out of this ego. Who was I kidding? Two months of sitting, you think you could do it? Yeah, good luck, you know. And I was, I was really giving myself a hard time. Oh, all this ego, I see it everywhere. It's so disgusting. And after about 10 minutes of this, the thought occurred to me that I was able to see it because I was clearer, but that I'd had that thought millions and millions and millions of times and not been able to pick it up. But I saw it. And when I, when I reflected on the millions of times that subtle presentation would pop its head in this lifetime, and then I started to think about eons and lifetimes, and it just was mind-boggling. And, and this wave of genuine compassion and forgiveness came over me that was much more profound than how slowly, if I could go like Marcel Morceau, that was, it deeply touched me, and it was saying, you are trying so hard. You are really giving it your all. This has been going on for a long time. This is going to take more than two months, but you're heading in the right direction. Just stay connected to that. And it was, it was really a landmark moment in my practice, deep compassion and deep forgiveness. When you find yourself judging, here's a little practice that I I began to take on, and it was for two years my main practice with the judging mind. So I'll offer it to you here. Some people have heard me share this uh, before on retreats. Suppose you're really coming down hard, and you're adding on what's called the second dart. The first dart, oh, Gosh, oh, my body hurts, the second dart. Oh, I'm so pathetic. I can't stand this aversion for, the, for my body hurting. Or, oh, I'm so fearful, and I hate the fact that I'm so fearful. That's the second one. Suppose you see the judgment. Oh, and there's judging. Because what happens when you see the judgment, and you know this is supposed to be non-judging awareness, right, is you can easily fall into, oh, that was a judgment. <laughs> Oh, shoot, I just did it again. That's another judgment. Oh, and now I'm judging the judging. And there's no way out of that. So here's the secret, and here's what I took on for my practice for quite some time. Just uh, try this if, you, if you're into it. Close your eyes, and just imagine you're catching the judgment, and you're seeing, oh, There's a judgment. And now, take your hand and put it on your cheek. Nobody's watching. You can close your eyes. And as if you were Kuan Yin doing the noticing and the noting, with the kindest voice, silently, as you're 
caressing your cheek, just name it. Oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, judging. And let yourself feel the tenderness in that. That's how you want to notice the judging mind. You can put your hand down. That was my main practice for two years. And it wasn't that I did this each time, but somehow putting your, your touching yourself either there or in your, on your heart, just feeling the tenderness can remind you to name it in that kind way. Then every time there's a judgment in the mind, it can be a springboard for compassion. Oh, great, I have another opportunity to practice compassion. And let Kuan Yin do the noting, because there's a Kuan Yin right inside of you. And you will get ample opportunity, because especially these first few days, there are, as many of you are quite familiar with, hindrances that come up, whether it's wanting things to be different or wanting something or wishing they were different, attachment, aversion, sleepiness, sloth and torpor, restlessness, where you feel like you're going to pop out of your skin, or doubt. All of those, that's part of what happens at the beginning of a retreat. And if you think that doing it well is being a hindrance-free yogi, you are going to cause a lot of suffering to yourself. That's a part of our human experience that we need to bring great kindness and compassion and get in touch with our own um, wisdom that can hold it and not take ownership of it. So, forgiveness, being the awareness. Another way that I have of working with the the judging mind, is seeing the emptiness of the thoughts. A thought pops up. You don't have control over your thoughts. This is something, again, that was, has been a great help for me. And that, that This might sound depressing, but I think it's great. You have no control over your mind. If you had control over your mind, wouldn't you just have loving thoughts of saving humanity and just blessing everybody that came through? But a few others slip through, don't they? You You have no control at any moment what comes through your mind. That might sound like discouraging news, but it's actually great news. Because if you realize that you have no control over the thoughts that come through, then you don't have to blame yourself for them. Right? They're just coming through on their own. You don't say, gee, I could go for some rage right now. You know? <laughs> it just comes. You know? How about some self-doubt? Yeah, that would be good for me. You know? It just comes all by itself. But the trick is, as you've been practicing many for many retreats, and certainly here for the next six weeks or three months, you will see as you sit more and more, just these thoughts coming and going and coming and going, and you don't have to blame yourself for them or take credit for the good ones. You know, when you have a good thought and say, hey, check it out. I hope everybody sees what a wonderful guy I am. That's just a setup for, oh my God, what a rotten person. You know, if everybody knew, they'd lock me up. Joseph has an, an excellent instruction I found very helpful. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts and you're in the hall, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> Because for all intents and purposes, they are. You don't invite them in. They just come. Who knows? Maybe you picked up some radio waves. Or, you, know. you don't have to believe your thoughts. They're as real as you believe them to be or as empty as you see them to be. They're just empty, but they're not the enemy. You don't have to get rid of your thoughts. The more you try to, the more life you give them. So just seeing the emptiness of those thoughts. One of my main practices, 
for quite some time, when I get snagged by my thought, my thoughts, is just asking if I can remember, what thought am I believing right now? Sometimes I'll ask, what story am I believing right now? But after you've seen how thoughts are empty, it's just kind of remembering, oh, I just got snagged by the thought. So forgiveness, seeing the emptiness of them, holding it in an awareness that's not identified. Having a sense of humor is really helpful. Because the mind just does its own thing, doesn't it? You know, as, as my, our friend and, and colleague Wes Nisker says, if you can't laugh, it's just not funny. You know? <laughs> and you can get very serious doing this practice. If you can laugh, though, then you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. And when you can go from, look at my mind, to, wow, look at the mind do its thing. That's amazing. When you can go from my mind to the mind, then you're free and you're not identifying. And the, the humor, the lightness, is one way to get some space and not identify with it. But it's very tricky. You have to watch out because <clears throat> the identification can come just around the corner. One, one, uh, one anecdote again around just having some lightness to this whole thing. On one, uh, one retreat, I was really getting into in subtleties of practice, I thought. And Joseph gave me this, this instruction. Notice how any sense of self is being created. You know? I said, oh, far out. You know, hey, that's a great practice. I'm going to just, you know, and I'd be walking, you know, no sense of self now. Okay, all right, like that. And this one time I was down in the lower hall and uh, I was in the, uh, walking on the bowling alley, you know, which they still kept in the remodeling. I'm so glad they, they kept the bowling alley. It was my favorite, one of my favorite places to walk. And I'd be, I was just really getting into the walking and somebody was coming through the corridor who was a kind of an endearing uh, bull in a china shop kind of a yogi, right? And he was writing, uh, he he happened to be a little bit of a Vipassana vendetta for me, but uh, that was, you know, there he's coming through and he was writing in his book, and this is when people were reporting their their best sittings, right? And he was kind of clomping through the corridor, writing as he's clomping about his best sitting, I thought, you know. And he's going through, and I'm doing my slow walking. I say, well, I sure have a lot less sense of self than he does. (laughs) Yeah, right. Caught again. You have to keep a sense of humor around this. Otherwise, it's just not funny. As you get more and more connected to a deeper sense of wisdom, and it's there in all of us, as you get connected, then you can hear the wisdom that's very different than the judging thoughts or the comparing thoughts. If you have thoughts coming through with a, a finger wagging, either at yourself or at life, saying, come on, you better not blow it. It's not good enough. You should, watch for the word should. You should, they should, it should. That is not the voice of wisdom. And you can feel it in your body as well as hear it in your mind. When you're connected to a deeper place of understanding and wisdom, that's not the judging thought. There's no finger wag. There's a kind of connection and solidity and kindness and compassion. And that's where what you can get into, as I've alluded to a few times, is connecting with the sincerity that you're bringing to practice. It was brought up in the question and answer period about the word effort. And often, as Carol was saying, often we equate effort with results. 
and then see how we're doing and give ourselves a report card. But effort is not about results. Wise effort is not about resu- results. You can, as, as was said, I think uh, Andrea said it, you can have, you'd be going through really uh, a, a sticky place and it can be a sign of very deep practice. You know? Or you can be having clear meditations but just be kind of coasting and not really waking up to the truth of things. So rather than judging how you're doing by what it looks like on the outside, keep coming back to your own sincerity. That's what I find is the most, uh, is the richest place to, uh, to stay connected to wise effort. And whatever you're doing within that, there's a wholeheartedness that doesn't have to be tight, but that can be spacious and kind because you're coming from the understanding, oh, this is going to support my practice the most. If you can simply ask that question, what will support my practice most right now? Whatever it comes, whatever it looks like, if, you're, if it means having a cup of tea or sitting through a walking period, it will look different things at different times. Just ask yourself and see if you can come from that place of kindness and support. And when you get more in touch with that, you get beyond the package to that the divine that wants to shine through you. And in that, how can you compare what's coming through you, the pure awareness that can come through you, or the unconditional love that comes through you with somebody else's? Can you say, my unconditional love is better than his? You know, It doesn't make any sense. My pure awareness is better than, than theirs. It's not yours to begin with, but you can celebrate it. You can uncover what obscures it. It's just a play of consciousness moving through us. So I'll close with this poem by Dana Falls called Awakening Now. <clears throat> Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. and My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect. And surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for a few moments. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening.
thank you for your attention. So once again, we'll have a 30-minute walking period and come back for, oh, 45, 45-minute walking period and uh, come back for a last sitting with some chanting. <laughs>